Good morning. We are in Luke 24, and I'd like to begin by reading the passage through. It's the narrative of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. It's found in Luke chapter 24, and I'll read verses 13 through 35. And I'll make some comments on the text. Some issues arise in the text. I want to put them aside so that we can concentrate on the exposition. Now that very day, what day is that? It's the greatest day in the history of the world. It's the Resurrection Sunday, the day that ever after would be called Easter for us. The greatest day in the history of redemption. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They had come to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover, but Emmaus was beyond a seven days journey, Sabbath journey, so they remained in the city with a little group of disciples until the Sabbath was done and they could return home. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. By a careful reckoning, I think it's around noontime, Jesus comes up alongside of them. The streets are packed with pilgrims leaving Jerusalem, just like they. And someone comes up alongside of them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. It's very apparent that they knew him intimately and well. They had had meals with him. They knew his teaching. They understood they loved him more than just understood his message. They were heartbroken at all that had happened in these last days. So anyway, they are discussing, and a spiritual masquerade happens. Jesus wants to talk to them, but he does not want them to recognize who he is, and so his, his true identity is disguised from them. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him, so that he could elicit this conversation, and their confidence will be based upon the word of God. And so he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? They were asking questions. The word is antibalo. It's like it's used of throwing a ball between two people. They're asking questions and answering. They're in a lively discussion about what does it mean? And what does it mean to live in a world where Jesus is dead? That's the topic. And so he says, what is this conversation that you were talking about? And they stood still, looking sad. The word means gloomy-faced. They were heartbroken. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know what things have happened here in these days? The word is not really visitor. I think I prefer the translation, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? The only one among us who hasn't heard of all of these things that have happened. The whole city had been in turmoil and in an uproar. You haven't heard the things that have happened here in these days? And Jesus said to them, what things? My goodness, what a word. What things? He had been in the very center of things, hadn't he? I think these two words that our Savior gives are a preview of heaven. All the suffering that Jesus had been through, that none of us, I suspect, in this life will ever enter into that kind of suffering 
after it is done and he's entered into his glory, it's almost forgotten. That's heaven. What things? What things? But he's eliciting from them the very things that will become their confidence as he exposits the scripture. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man, well, he was more than a man, wasn't he? But a man can die, and Jesus is is dead. He was a prophet, mighty indeed. Well, he had claimed to be more than just a prophet. John was a prophet, and he too had died. But he was a prophet, mighty in word and deed. They're salvaging whatever they can from his ministry. Before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. He hung on a tree, that is, he was cursed of God according to the law. How could our religious leaders have done that? But we had hoped, and did you hear that? Their hope is gone. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Now that is what provokes the Lord's response. It is the third day. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of those who were with us, namely Peter and John, went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But here's the fact. But him they did not see. They're living in a world where Jesus is dead. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. That translation makes it a little bit rough, I think, a little bit harsher than it really is the intention. The word is anoetes. It means one without reasoning. They know the scriptures. They know the scriptures well. Jesus will rehearse all of Moses and the prophets, but they don't know the patterns. They haven't seen by reasoning the way that the scriptures hold together and support the claims of Christ in his suffering. It's not enough, Jesus is telling us, just to know the scriptures. You have to know the patterns, or it leads to sorrow in this life. So in that sense, they are foolish, but it's because they are unreasoning about the scriptures and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? They're slow of heart to believe in resurrection. We're raised with that idea. We see it in the Bible. But they weren't in a world where resurrection was common. Jesus had raised the dead. But now Jesus is dead. And who is there among us who can raise him? So... Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them, to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Moses, all the prophets, all the scriptures, everything in the scripture speaks of him, and particularly of his death, burial, and resurrection on the third day. So they drew near to the village which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. That's part of that masquerade. 
He pretended like he was going to continue on to Emmaus is to the west, going to the west, to prompt them to invite him to their home. And they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. He always comes when he's invited. And their eyes, and when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it, and he gave it to them, and their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. It's a different world. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures, and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven who were still without hope. And those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let's begin with prayer. Our gracious Father, we thank you for this precious word from our Lord, your Son, our Savior, and how he showed mercy, and how he comforted his own. And he ever lives to comfort us through his word and by his intercessory prayer on our behalf and by his heart longing as our bridegroom to be forever with us. We pray that our hearts might respond as well, that the Spirit might quicken us, that our hearts would burn within us, burning and longing for our precious Lord. For one day we will see him and be embraced by the nail-pierced hands. And when longing for that day, we live in hope, even though we live in the sufferings of this age. Grant us favor to open the passage before us. For Jesus' sake, amen. I'd like you to go back in time with me to Sunday, April 5th, the year of our Lord, 33. We are in Jerusalem. It's about 6 a.m. by our reckoning, which is about a half an hour before sunrise. It's still the last waning period of time in the Jewish Sabbath. We will find ourselves in the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, who has a large home. And that night, she's giving shelter to some of Jesus' closest friends. On Friday, the day before yesterday, they had seen their beloved prophet tortured and crucified to death, barely 36 hours before. For them, those in this room, it is still very dark. The light of the world has gone out. Jesus is dead. The one who claimed to be the resurrection and the life had been buried in haste the day before yesterday. Yesterday was a very hard Sabbath. What did all of this mean? What was left of Jesus' ministry now that he is in the grave? 
In our imagination, we go very quickly from Good Friday to Easter Sunday. But this early church community of faith, our brothers and sisters, had to endure something greater than 36 hours, imagining a world where Jesus is dead. What sorrow is in that? There's sighs and tears all around the room. A few are able to sleep, exhausted by all that happened. Most try to imagine what that world will be like. How will they make sense of things? Some struggle with memories of how they had behaved the day before. No one in this company is more sorrowful, I suspect, than Peter, who pretends to sleep in the corner, dreading the dawn and the cock crow. What does it mean in this world where the one who says he is the resurrection and the life is dead? What does it mean that the one we thought with the Christ is now a dead Messiah? What about his work? Will the spots now return to the lepers he healed? Will the demons return to afflict those he cleansed? Will the dead he raised fall back into their graves? Will all his work come undone? His teaching seems to come undone, doesn't it? Jesus taught us that the meek inherit the earth. Jesus was the meekest of men. But all the earth that he inherits is the grave. Jesus taught us to pray for those who persecute us. Well, is this how all of that ends too? He taught us to love our enemies. How sweet is that teaching? Who will teach us now? Now that his enemies have killed him. Time passes, and it's just a few minutes before the dawn. Nearby, this room in Mary's house, a rooster rouses himself, ruffles his wings, throws back his neck, and crows in the dawn. It's the time called cockcrow. Peter turns his face to the wall and weeps bitterly. The rest of his life is treachery and denials. The memory of that will awaken him. He doesn't yet know that the Lord will comfort him by restoring him at the same time. Every day for the rest of Peter's life, he will awaken with the memory of his weakness and Jesus' strength and love. But he doesn't know that now. Now after this, very quickly, the sun crests over the Mount of Olives and a great earthquake awakens and terrifies these distraught disciples of Jesus. It reminds them of the earthquake at the time Christ was crucified and died. In another part of the city, however, something amazing happens. An angel rolls away a great stone. That stone rolled away crushes forever the serpent of old. 
It destroys the power of death and hell. Jesus rises. The dawn penetrates the tomb. His heart is filled with love and joy for his father who is vindicated. The meaning of his death. He turns and sees that the stone has been rolled away. He is about to receive the keys of death and Hades. When he crosses from that tomb into the outer world. It represents the high priest leaving the Holy of Holies, leaving the presence of God alive, which means that God has accepted his sacrifice and put away the sin of the people. So he eagerly awaits crossing that threshold. But before he leaves the tomb, he hesitates. He takes the linen napkin that had been over his head. He rolls it in a very customary, his customary but very unique way, and sets it by itself and leaves it there. He's thinking about Peter and how he will comfort him. Evidently, there was something about the way that he folded. I think he'd prepared that for three years. I remember my mother, when she would set a table for guests, she had linen napkins, and there was a unique way that she folded them. I've never seen that since she went to be with the Lord 11 years ago. Never seen it before, against or before or after. If I came home and I saw a napkin folded just that way, my heart would race. The Lord did that because he knew Peter was coming. And that was the proof that the evangelists say, when he saw that napkin folded up by itself, Peter believed. He knows Peter will see it and be comforted. Comfort. There are some sweet yet broken-hearted women fast on their way to the tomb right now. Jesus must meet them. He wants to comfort them too. To take away their sorrow, you see, they come bearing spices. And he has no need of spices. They come with tears. They have no need of tears. Yet they don't realize that. This is the great day of the world's redemption. This is the very day that all the Old Testament looked forward to. The great day of triumph for the son of David. Now what could Jesus have done on the great day of his great victory? You might think that he could have gone to show himself to Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests. He could have presented himself to the Sanhedrin of the Jews that had condemned him. He might have sought out King Herod or perhaps Pilate. But Jesus does not parade in triumph before his enemies on his great day. This day, the greatest day in the history of the world, the entire day will be spent comforting his broken-hearted disciples. It's our Savior. 
In the morning, he will bring comfort to the women from Galilee and Mary Magdalene. In the afternoon, he will meet Cleopas and his companion on the road to Emmaus. That is how he will comfort his friends. It's how he comforts us. Those of you who know his love know how he still comes to you in the days of sorrow to comfort Well, what is it that the dialogue entailed? Luke doesn't report that dialogue, but he gives us the only clue we know and need to know to reconstruct it. Looking back at the text, verse uh, 18, one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. And how? Here it is. These are the awful things that happened to him, never understanding that all of these had to happen. They were ordained to happen by the word itself. He was a prophet, a mighty man and works, and our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, to be crucified. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. The third day, Jesus had taught explicitly he would be raised on the third day after being crucified and buried. All the scriptures testified to the third day resurrection of the Messiah. All the scriptures testified and testified to that, and they missed it. The apostles learned it. All of the ancient creeds of the church and confessions emphasize raised the third day according to the scriptures. That is the way we are to read the Old Testament, to look for and see the third day And so he said to them in verse 25, O unreasoning one, slow of heart to believe all the prophets had spoken. They know what the prophets had spoken, but they haven't embraced it with faith, reasoned it out, and seen the patterns. Was it not necessary, the word deo, was it not bound? We would say ordained. Was it not ordained? And the answer is, of course it was that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory. He's teaching us how to suffer. The apostles pick this up. They always talk about suffering followed by glory. If you understand that your suffering is followed by glory, you can have the one thing that can enable you to persevere, and that's hope. So the apostles, Paul uses that phrase several times. Peter, James, Suffering of Christ and the glory to follow. So beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What did that sound like? I will tell you that to go through the explicit references to the third day in the Old Testament to see that template of suffering and glory takes about three hours about the time it would take 
And that's not all of the instances. I've discovered there are many more. My goodness. The whole Old Testament is telling us this. Let me take you a little bit along that journey with them. Passages that I'm confident Jesus would have appealed to, to demonstrate that history was not off course, but it was precisely fulfilling everything that Moses and the prophets had said. He began with Moses, we're told. Chapter 1, we are taught the third day resurrection. How? Do you remember what happens on the third day of creation week? God brings forth the grass, the vegetation, and the trees bearing fruit. Organic life, life forms that we recognize first emerge from the world of death on the third day of creation. All of those, by the way, become emblems and figures of speech of Jesus, who speaks of it. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it comes forth. It's a picture of resurrection. From the very first chapter of Moses, first book. And then we go to chapter 8. We haven't gone very far at all. By the way, it's, I'm leaving some behind. Remember the ark, God's promise to that covenant family of, of Noah? The ark comes to rest upon the mountains of Ararat. Moses hesitates to tell us the day. It's the 17th of Nisan. Why is that significant? Because for the Jews, when they would read that, they would know the 14th day of Nisan is Passover. Three days after the Passover sacrifice was to be ordained, the ark came to rest in a new world. Three days. Easter. And Passover. Three days after Passover, the first Passover in Egypt, when Israel is in bondage, to the taskmasters of Pharaoh. They leave Egypt, which is the land that represents death in the Bible. It's the cult of the dead. It's the land of graves. Moses had asked Pharaoh, let us go a three-day journey into the wilderness. And Pharaoh would not let him because a three-day journey from Egypt would take them beyond the jurisdictional limits of the land of death on their way to be regathered to their fathers, an emblem of resurrection. Israel comes into the wilderness, comes indeed to Sinai, and sins that horrible sin of the golden calf. Remember that? Aaron presides over public worship. His first public presiding is idolatrous. Moses goes up the slopes of Sinai to make intercession for the people. And three days after the great sin of Israel, Moses, who has made intercession, begs to see the glory of God. What does God do? He takes him and places him in a cleft of the rock. Emblematically, 
He is entombing him in the rock. And on the third day, after the, Israel's great sin, he comes forth, his face filled with the glory of God. Wasn't the third day the day when the righteous were, were, would, to, would be delivered from a piercing unto death? Just like a crucifixion, a piercing. Didn't God deliver his righteous on the third day? Remember that Isaac was saved from the piercing knife of his father. On the third day, when God pointed out the mountain Moriah, on the third day, Isaac was delivered from death and restored to the love of his father Abraham. What about the spies of Joshua? You remember that Rahab had buried them under stalks of flax, which is always associated with linen and the shroud. She buried them to hide them. And then as they made their escape, she told them, wait three days in the Quaritania Mountains before you make your return to the camp of Israel and Joshua. Three days after they are emblematically buried and under the threat of the sword of the king, they are delivered from death and restored to Joshua in the camp. What about David? Saul takes his spear and wants to pin him to the wall. And he escapes into the night. And there is that back and forth. And the masquerade. Michael dresses the household idol with a goat skin to make it look like David is sick in bed. And they go back to Saul and he sends them again to arrest David, even if he's sick, to bring him back. And they come, it seems, on the morning of the third day and all they find are David's bedclothes. For David has escaped the death that Saul had intended for him. David again was delivered from the piercing sword of the angel of the Lord. When on the third day he goes out to confront the angel who had brought pestilence to Israel. He places himself to protect Jerusalem. The angel is turning now south toward the city of David. But the three days have expired and the angel of death sheaths his sword. David is spared death on the third day. Daniel. King makes a decree. You can't worship anyone except me for 30 days. Daniel goes to his house and opens his windows publicly to worship the Lord, the true God. The minute he kneels in prayer the first time, he is a dead man. He prays three times. Isn't that interesting? On the second day, he is condemned. The king tries to release him and can't. On the evening of the second day, they lower Daniel, faithful Daniel, innocent Daniel, into a den of death. A lion's den. Stone is rolled over the mouth, sealed with the seals of the king. The king goes to spend a sleepless night 
saying, I can't deliver you, Daniel, but the God you serve, he must deliver you. And early in the morning of the third day after Daniel is condemned, the king rushes to that den. He calls out, he hears the voice of Daniel. God has sent his angel to deliver him from death and the piercing teeth of the lions. The king gives command, the seals are broken, the stone is rolled away and Daniel is lifted up ultimately to be exalted to the right hand of the great king who himself will send out letters to all the known world commanding all of his subjects to worship the one true God, the God of Daniel. So God has delivered his righteous, hasn't he, from the piercing knife, the piercing sword, the piercing spear, the piercing teeth. Can he not deliver his righteous ones from the piercing of the nails? Wasn't the third day a day of triumph for the son of David? Isn't there something about that son of David that has a power, unique power on the third day? What about Hezekiah? Didn't Isaiah prophesy that he must die? But he wept and he was heard for his much weeping. And God extended his life and told him, you will be healed of your disease. And on the third day, you will go up to the temple to give thanks for having been delivered from death. What about King Jehoshaphat? You remember all his enemies had gathered. He didn't know it. That made confederacy against him. All of the ancient inveterate enemies of Israel. They were 20 miles away. No time to prepare any defense. So Hezekiah, Jehoshaphat prays. He prays to the Lord. And he's told to send out a team of worshipers, his praise team, to the battle. And God causes confusion in the camp of the enemy, and they all slaughter one another. So for three days, Jehoshaphat gathers the plunder of the nations and returns in triumph to Jerusalem to give thanks in the temple. All the way through, Jesus is encouraging them And hope is beginning to well up within them. Their hearts are burning as they hear, maybe all of this was not for naught. Maybe, Maybe he really is alive as the angels reported to the women. And Hosea the prophet. Listen to the words of Hosea. If the Lord has torn us, has anyone here been torn? If he has stricken us, has anyone here been stricken under the good providence of God? Listen to what Hosea says. If the Lord has torn us, it is only so he can heal us. If he has stricken us, it's only so he can revive us. For after two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up. The third day is the day of our triumph, too.
So we come back to the text. They had spent the afternoon as Jesus exposits the Old Testament. And they knew, drew near to the village which they were going. The sun is declining in the west. Jesus acts as if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, even though he's not the host, he's still the stranger from Jerusalem. He takes the role of a host. And he took the bread and blessed it. And in his customary way, he broke it. And they knew who he was. What did they see? And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him by the scars, I believe, in his hands. And then he vanished from their sight. So now, these two precious disciples say, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? You see, it's the message of resurrection that is the great theme of the Old Testament, of the whole Hebrew scriptures. It is the resurrection, the hope of resurrection of the Christ. That theme, when rightly preached, causes our hearts to swell, the spirit within us bearing testimony that truly he is risen. Did not our hearts burn within us when he opened to us the scriptures and they rose that same hour? Once you realize that Jesus is not dead, he is living, you have to tell. That's the testimony that you know he is alive You have to tell that same hour they rose and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were gathered together. Those with whom they had spent that terribly, terribly sad Sabbath. They come in saying, don't you know, the, the doors burst open, they come in. The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon The Lord has risen indeed. That's what we say as Christians to one another on Easter time. The Eastern Church, that great Orthodox Christian church, our brothers and sisters have taught us that. Every Easter, the Christian greets, the Lord is risen. And the other Christian answers back, he is risen indeed. It's that confidence in resurrection that gives us hope through the sufferings of this world. It is ordained that we should suffer, but we don't have to suffer without hope. We can suffer with great hope, knowing that our Lord is not dead, but living. So they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed 
and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Do you know him? When we set this sacred supper and you were invited to take and eat, why, those were the verbs of our fall into sin and death. She saw the fruit of the tree. It was beautiful and good for food, desirable to make one wise. She took and ate and gave. Jesus makes the verbs of our fall when he says, this is my body broken for you, take and eat. He makes the very verbs of our fall the verbs of our salvation. And Eve and Adam took and ate, and their eyes were opened, and they knew they were naked. They knew their shame and guilt. These precious disciples likewise took and ate, and their eyes were opened. But instead of their shame, they knew him. He who covers all of our sin and shame. Jesus has restored us to the garden just like he restores Mary that morning to the garden. She thinks he's a gardener. Oh, but he is our new Adam. More than a man, a divine man, and one who loves us and comes to us to comfort us in our times of sorrow when we forget that the Lord is risen, yea, he is risen indeed. Father, we thank you for your word. It is all our comfort, all our hope. Grant that we might not be unreasoning disciples, but in studying it, we might see its patterns and see how all of the scriptures are pointing to your Son, our Savior, May he be lifted up for now and evermore in our hearts. Amen.